0: There's just so much, like a felony can do to, like you know, negatively affect your life, and I just didn't want that for myself.
1: Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Maybe you've seen the graphic from the Sentencing Project. It shows that at the current pace of reform. It will be 60 years before the U.S. prison population is even cut in half. A major reason for this is many reforms exclude people with more serious charges, even though these are the same people most likely to be incarcerated and to be in the most need of the programs and treatment reform can bring. That's the problem of the comfort zone in the title of today's episode. But there is work going on to expand that comfort zone. A new felony court in Manhattan that we're a partner to at the Center for Court Innovation is devoted exclusively to offering Alternatives to Incarceration, ATIs, to people facing more serious charges, including violent ones. No charges excluded, and it's among the first all-purpose felony alternative courts in the country. The court's work is taking place in the midst of a humanitarian crisis at New York City's Rikers Island jails. As the deaths there mount, it's clear every tool that can spare people from incarceration right now should be put to use. The felony ATI court is one of those tools, and jurisdictions across the country are watching closely right now to see if it's one they should be using. A question of this episode, then, is can a treatment-first approach for felonies be brought to scale, and can it be done inside of the same system responsible for mass incarceration in the first place? We're going to hear a range of perspectives on the court's potential in what follows, from a judge, a public defender, and from a practitioner overseeing the court's clinical work. But first, we're going to hear from a court participant, a young man we're calling L.
0: You don't you don't want to do it, but you're going to do it anyway because you know that like, that's your friend. So like, that's like thinking for others and like doing what other people want you to do.
1: L and I are sitting by an artificial lake in Manhattan Central Park. L was brought up in Harlem by his grandparents. His mom died when he was young and his daddy says, wasn't really there. L is 24 now and he was 20 when he was arrested for the first and only time. Police showed up at the
0: apartment where he lives with his grandparents. Yeah, they um, raided my house because um, they were like, tipped off that it was a firearm in my house. And um, yeah, like they they raided the house, they came in and like they just, they told me straight up, they said like, we know it's a gun here, like you're gonna like either tell us where it is or like we're gonna like take everybody that you're living with in the house, like, you know, just lock everyone up. So like not trying to put everyone in that situation, I I just told them like where it was. And like from there, like that's like when like everything just began. Normally, everything began
1: would end with jail or prison, and the consequences of a felony conviction for possessing a gun illegally would follow L for life. It was his first experience of the system, but he understood the stakes. Uh, they, my colleagues told me that you used to be really nervous before court appearances. Sometimes, is
0: that right? <laughs> yeah, cause like, I never really got in trouble, so like, yeah, I, I used to actually like vomit before I go to court, like, because like, I was to be so nervous. And like, you know, it was just that anxiety building up, like going like the court.
1: This might be a dumb question, but what, what, why do you think it, what was making you so nervous?
0: Um, honestly, because like I'm a black man and like, like, I know the system is not set up for like, you know, people of color. So like, you know, I just didn't think like it was going to play in my favor. like, no matter what, like, you know, my attorney was telling me or like, no matter what, like, you know, what I was doing to like, you know, keep myself out of that. I just didn't like, really believe it was going to work out for me, but it actually did, so I'm just grateful that it did. Thanks in part to his lawyer, L. entered the Felony
1: Alternative to Incarceration program. It meant pleading guilty and accepting an 18-month mandate of treatment and services, but if he completed it, there'd be no jail time and no felony conviction. But, um, but yeah, great. Now, should I call you Judge Byben? I'm just a civilian. Sure. With, yeah, to find out more about, about the program, I spoke um, with Administrative right, Judge Ellen Byben. She presides uh, over the specialized Judge court. I mean, uh, now, a couple of notes. Okay. Insiders in New York often refer to a court as a part, and a disposition refers to how a case was resolved. A number of partners, including the Manhattan District uh, so Attorney's we Office, we were we central we to we getting the new court is, up and running. I started by asking Judge Bybin why it was work she wanted to help lead.
2: I did see that there was a need to create an infrastructure, a real infrastructure, and to model it on some of the great work of our existing problem-solving courts. And the difference between doing the ad hoc process that we were following on some of these dispositions, I mean, the difference is, is a world of difference. The purpose of this part, and I think one of the distinguishing features from other problem-solving courts is we're not um, charge-specific. Uh, There's no charge that's necessarily qualifying and no charge that's necessarily disqualifying. I think the one of the other special features of this part is it really tries to be very individualized in its approach, both to who should be or who is eligible, and then also for what then is the nature of the disposition.
1: So you mentioned that there's no disqualifying charges for for accessing this court. And that's not always the norm, right, with alternatives to incarceration, which tend to sometimes stop lower on the charge scale. And there's been a reticence, I think, about dealing with violence.
2: Right. I think that's right. And I understand that. That's an area where I think we've been fairly innovative, but I will say there's an important tension. If you have a situation, if there's a violent offense, and if there are victims involved, I really try hard to be mindful of that. Even if you have an individual who you think really is better suited for non-incarceratory program you know, mandates. And that's, I think, why the you know the violent offenses are difficult. I should note all of these dispositions, you know, the mandate involves treatment and programming, but the mandates always also involve a mandate to stay out of trouble, no new arrests, to return to court. If they're not law abiding and following the mandate of the court, then they'll you know they won't get the disposition and they may very well face the alternative, which is uh, often, state incarceration.
1: I don't know if we can, you know, talk about job satisfaction. You know, when it comes to being a judge, but how do you think being in charge of this this court with its particular approach has changed the way you think about uh, your role as a judge?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, and it's one I think about. Once there is a disposition, you know, and after a disposition, we remain very involved. It's fairly standard for me to have a direct colloquy with the participant. I typically ask them, how are you feeling? You know, Are there any issues or concerns you wanna raise? I say that I think every update. I have to tell you, it's, I, you know, it's on a daily basis, I am moved. There are situations where people say, you know what, the program's not letting me take a particular medication, and I think I would be doing better if I were able to take this medication. That might be a level of detail that no one was aware of. And you know, just hearing hearing them advocate for themselves and of being a participant in that way and us being able to address that and problem solve, that's progress. It sounds very small, but it can be very effective. Obviously, there's a piece of this that is punitive, but really the, the thrust of this is rehabilitative. I don't think Manhattan is unique. I think our success here should be used. As a model and a template for other counties, for other cities, you know, throughout the nation.
1: The idea of reducing the use of incarceration or, you know, building alternatives to it is right there in the name of the court. You know, we've certainly learned a lot more in recent years about like the real harms of incarceration. Uh, We're seeing it in real time right now with the deaths that are happening on Rikers Island. I, I just wonder for you as a judge being part of this court, if how that's changing, if at all, your understanding of the role or or the utility of incarceration?
2: As I said, I think this is not really up to the court or any one judge in particular. So I think kind of to respond to you, I think there is a general sense among the stakeholders. And by stakeholders, I mean all of the participants, all of the court users, and that includes the judge. I think we all have recognized that there are needs for dispositions that go beyond incarceration. There's a wide spectrum there. I don't think I or anyone really has to say where they where they are on that spectrum, but I think there is fairly wide consensus that we've got an obligation to explore alternatives when they are appropriate. Because this is not just about the needs of any one individual. I think what we're trying to address as a whole is if you're addressing the needs of the individual, the hope is, of course, that you're addressing recidivism. And that's ultimately a public safety issue, right? That's, that goes to the needs and rights of the community. But I, I think this is, again, I think there's a general consensus that in many instances, we have not been addressing the recidivism and public safety, but through incarceration. So we've we've really got to explore other ways.
1: Our participant L experienced those other ways, Judge Bibin is referring to. His mandate, as I said, was for eighteen months. A mixture of therapy, employment support,
0: and treatment. Um honestly the whole program like to me was like very useful because like, you know, like it just opened your mind to like, you know, like new things. Like you don't like just think about like, what's in front of you, like what's in your environment like you wanna like, you know like, expand, like, make new friends, like, you know, try new things and stuff like that. And, like, it just helps you see, like, the bigger picture than, like, like I said, like, what's in front of you.
1: The treatment L received was for marijuana. He also had to prove to the court he'd stopped using it.
0: Honestly, in the beginning, I didn't think I was going to be able to do it because, like, the weekly toxicology, like, I was, like, like, like a big, like, like, marijuana user, so, like, I didn't think like it was going to be possible for me to like quit but like just like just like having a felony like on my record like I knew like it's either like you know just quit for like the duration of like the mandate or you know just keep doing it and just keep this felony on your record and like I knew what what made more sense so I just you know just quit
1: L is especially grateful for the relationship with
0: his therapist um, yeah, that was very helpful because like before like I never really like, you know, wanted to like speak to people about like my like, you know, what's going on in my life. So like, you know, like I like built that, you know, trust with my um therapist and, you know, like, I still talk to her to this day. So it's like, you know, like she she was really helpful and you know, like it might take some time to like open up to people but like, you know, if you open up, like speaking to people like you is gonna help you. So I think like people should like advantage of that too before we hear the conclusion of Elle's
1: story let's get a couple more perspectives on the potential of offering these kinds of alternatives to people facing more serious charges should a program like this become the norm rather than the alternative and even if it did how transformative would that be tina luongo is a public defender and the attorney in charge of the legal aid society's criminal defense practice and David Hayfitz is the project director for Manhattan Justice Opportunities. It's a program of the Center for Court Innovation and one of the partners to the felony ATI court. I began the conversation by asking Tina what the conditions at Rikers Island say about the urgency of any work that can keep people out of jail in New York City right now. And I need to say, in the time since we recorded this conversation, two more people have died in the custody of the jail system, That brings the total number of deaths this year up to 14. Here's Tina Luongo.
3: I mean, it's a a cry, right? Out of the 12 people who have died, all of them, right, have had either medical conditions, health conditions, or mental health struggles, or both. And then once in jail, no matter how much, corrections health services and the doctors there try to keep services going. And right now that's impossible given the department of corrections staffing issues. The reality is it's not a therapeutic environment. Uh, And so this is a moment. It's a moment to sort of say in the face of this crisis, we've failed for decades. And if we don't, immediately put something in place, not only for the here and now, but as a pathway to the future that removes people from carceral settings like this and, and back into therapeutic sessions environments, we will lose far more than just the 12 people. We will lose the moment of urgency to change.
1: And so, D- David, what is the, the program doing you know, right now in response to this moment that Tina is talking about, this this added uh, urgency of keeping people from, from Rikers?
4: Since the beginning of the pandemic, and definitely now, it's kind of an all hands on deck effort. If someone is in and the only thing that's separating them from coming out into the community and starting treatment or services is an assessment, we can do that assessment by video. Um, we've been doing that since the start of the pandemic. Um, with, if they're in Rikers, we can start an assessment there by video. We can continue it in the community. And I think even more importantly, we can find, even if a placement in a, you know, for example, in a residential facility, a bed is not available at the moment, and that's holding up uh, someone's release, we can find other services, other supports, other structure for them so they can go into the community pending that placement.
1: And then, it, it, Tina, I, I was struck, there was a, a recent New York Times piece about President Biden and the administration weighing clemency for some of the people that were released into home confinement uh, from federal prison under COVID, um, who are now facing a return to prison. And, and he said, President Biden, that his area of comfort when it came to clemency was nonviolent drug offenders. And, and that's a, a common and, and pretty small area of comfort. Now, this felony ATI program is trying to push into... The, the more serious charges. But how has this small area of comfort, you know, a- affected kind of criminal justice reform more broadly?
3: I mean, it's, it's not only at the federal level, but it's right here, right now. The mayor is not releasing people under his exclusive authority under correction law 6A to release people who are serving city sentences, by and large, low level, under this idea that somehow we have to um, screen people for public safety concerns. We have got to have this conversation that we must get to a place where we see that trauma, mental health issue and sort of men- underlying mental health issues that are not addressed in community by services will bring somebody to the doors of the criminal legal system and this idea that if we simply just keep people incarcerated that we're doing the right thing by public safety. Reality is people come home. People come home with short lengths of stays and people come home after years in state prison. And if we do not address the fact that we just have people come back to a community without, again, services, we've done nothing for public, real public safety, right? So it's a It's talking points when you hear our president, the DA's, the mayor talking about uh, we have to make sure we're providing public safety. It's talking points because there's nothing behind the increase of services and funding to community based therapeutic services.
1: So David, could you talk a a little bit about the, uh, just briefly about the broad outlines of of the program
4: in Manhattan? So uh, the felony ATI program, it's really about an opportunity to figure out what's going on in somebody's life um, and what what it is that brought them into contact with the justice system or led to their arrest, and then giving them the opportunity to engage in services that uh, address those needs in their communities instead of having to go to prison or be on a long probation sentence. We provide support for them during their, their mandate. We're always checking in with them to see how they're doing. And we're also reporting back to the, the court on a regular basis to how progress is going, if there are any issues, if there are any problems coming up. And the parties will come together like every, frequently when there is an issue, problem solve, uh, to think about what could be, you know, what other supports could be put in place,
1: so it's not like if, if somebody misses one appointment with their therapist, they're, they're booted out of the program and end up back in jail or something?
4: No, not at all. That's built into the approach. And Judge Biden um, and, and Manhattan District Attorney's Office, uh, to their credit, who and, and Manhattan DA was instrumental in setting up this program, there really is baked into this and understanding that progress isn't going to always happen in a straight line. People may miss appointments. They may relapse. In extreme places, they may be rearrested arrested at some points. And that doesn't mean that you're kicked out of the program. It's really about, okay, um, this has happened. How do we support this person? Try to get them back on track. And that, that really is part of, I think, what separates this. It's not punitive. It's really supportive. And,
1: and so, Tina, as David was saying, all sort of parties to this need to agree to the process, and that's going to include somebody's defender. I, I'm wondering what you're hearing from your public defenders about the, about the program or, or just, you know, your, your sort of overall reaction to it?
3: Obviously, first and foremost, for any, not only public defender, but criminal defense attorney, our mandate is one that we must act in the best interest of our clients. We work very much in the space of the treatment courts and have for decades. So because we have to be. That said, we also have an equally important position to remind constantly that the best form of treatment is before the arrest and not after. And I'm never going to give up that, point. right? I think what has happened over the years, you know, we were using treatment programs, treatment courts for everything, even misdemeanor drug court. So there's a delicate balance by which public defenders and criminal defense attorneys play a critical role here to say to the system, like, Carrot and stick mindset doesn't work if you're over programming somebody or creating so many conditions upon a person that it's going to be a, a failure. It's really important to call out that that's because the court system tries to control the person a bit too much, which feeds into that's because a judge doesn't want to see their face on the front of the post, right? So that, that's our role and you know, I think that it's changing even as we speak, there is some traction, certainly as we look at Rikers Island right now to sort of say it's time for our state to look at treatment, not jails, which is a growing movement of state law change that might change the dynamic of the ATI versus the uh, alternative to prosecution model front-loading services, I think it's a good time for us to all, as stakeholders, get at the table again and say, if this shift happens, you know, what's the best approach together?
1: I mean, w- what you're saying, yes, treatment, not jail, but this remains treatment, and if you fail at the treatment, jail is still there in the background. I mean, that's what you're pointing at, right, with this fear of of setting people up for failure, right?
3: Yeah, and people fail, and sometimes courts will enact that sentence. Often, sometimes, that's a hefty state sentence. And now the person doesn't get good time credit, often, for the times in which they tried. And so now the sentence is enacted, and it is a jail sentence that takes none of the two years into effect. It's heartbreaking.
4: I think one of the ways we definitely do not want to set people up for failure or overprogram people And one of the ways we address that is through the the truly individualized assessment that we're doing with people and then the plans that we're developing for them. We're working with, in New York City, somewhere around 100 different treatment providers in the community. So we can cater uh, the services that someone's getting really that match not only the area of need that they wanna work on and need to work on, but also specifically tailor the services I mean, Tina.
1: I know that you would like a kind of more holistic response to the criminal legal system. I mean, you've you've talked about the you know alternative to prosecution rather than just alternative to incarceration. But for now, I mean, we dance with the one that brung us, so to That's speak. Right. You know, um,
3: right. I call it tools in the toolbox. Right. We're going to use every tool in our toolbox. The current toolbox has alternatives to incarceration and treatment court centered. We utilize that in the best interest of our clients, and we've had success, right? We've had success in Manhattan. I know because those stories are shared with me by our attorneys that are in that court every day in Manhattan. But I think it is time for us to have this conversation. And I know all the treatment providers, right, David and his team and citywide. Are also engaged in having these conversations, which are like, wouldn't it be wonderful to also have an alternative, which we would front-load our services as an alternative to prosecution, if that ever happened?
4: Tina, I mean that your point is is the critical one. These, we don't want to wait till someone's at arraignment to be doing this. We should also be realistic about what alternative to incarceration programs, even if they, you know, every, if they become the default response. They're still working with individuals and people with individual needs and problems, but they're not solving the larger societal issues that are there. People don't have housing, the education system, good paying jobs. There are all kinds of issues that we're not going to be able to solve. And I think another thing to bear in mind is that some of these challenges that people have, they're not going to be, you can't solve those problems within the context of a one- or a two-year court mandate. Someone may need treatment for their for years. So um, I think in this moment that we have with them, we want to make as much progress as we can and really um, help them to set them up for living a healthy life in their community that is beneficial to them and is something that they really want.
3: I do think we have to really think about decarcerating before the arrest because what we know to be true is studies after study after study shows like even 24 hours of incarceration destabilizes somebody and that people who are incarcerated with mental health length of stay could be upwards of five times longer because of the critical importance and how long it takes to restabilize somebody to Housing, right? David said it like you're trying to put somebody back into community, Well, they might have lost everything or they didn't have it in the first place. And certainly now, David's probably and his team are probably seeing this even with Treatment core, DOC's production issues because of their staffing, even if it's virtual, they're not, they can't bring people to even virtual booths, let alone court. And so then all of a sudden, The treatment provider has to put off an interview or the court's now adjourning because the person's not produced to take the plea. So their even lengths of stay are getting longer for the exact population that should absolutely not be at Rikers right now. So while we're talking about expanding, we have to counter that with moving it up, not actually having anybody step into Rikers in the first place. Um, and I think that that conversation is getting traction, but for now we have to use that tool and it most certainly should be expanded. This tool most certainly is appropriate and should be expanded to people who are charged with uh, violent crimes.
1: And, and David, can it be expanded? Can it be brought to scale given you know, the challenges of setting this up and getting needing to get the prosecution on board and the court system and then the challenges of this very individualized treatment.
4: I think we're showing in Manhattan that you can work with a significant number of people. It's about 150, 160 or so people who are currently in the program. Which is terrific. Could we add another digit to that number if if it were needed? Obviously, we don't want to Engage in net widening. We don't want it. If cases should be dismissed or charges should be downgraded, or it's not needed. Then we don't want those people to to enter this program. But I do think there are many more cases in Manhattan alone where that could um, where people could benefit from felony alternative to incarceration, and that is definitely true. And we're we're seeing that in Brooklyn. We're seeing it in the Bronx.
3: I mean, I am in, I am interested in uh, these ongoing conversations about what you know a new state law about, and again it. It just recognizes you move the funding for service providers forward and not wait for the arrest, which which I'm imagining service providers will be fully supportive of, right? How to partner, to raise awareness, to educate the general public, to educate Albany, to educate uh, our governor on how successful, because I don't, unfortunately in news, the headline is always, the one that that didn't work out right the person who despite everything it was a quote quote failure not that we ever fail in people but right it's the horror story that's what gets the cover it's never the success it isn't my client that got the services finally that was needed that should have been given all along since he was a child to a place where he was going to work he was working in a law firm like how do we as partners start to to highlight those stories for the general public i think that the general public wants to know when they're thinking about public safety from their lens that this is this is the majority of this the, the majority of people are successful right what you see on the cover of the post is not not the norm
4: now for every you know 150 people that you have in this program if if one thing goes wrong with one that unfortunately can become the perception and it's not and it's not the reality at all. Tina I think your point you know this is you know there's this dichotomy of violent non-violent offenses and non-violent offenses especially drug, drug those are cases that can be safely diverted from the system at whatever point and I challenge that. And I think we're showing and proving that you, that felony ATI, it shouldn't be restricted to certain type of, or an ATI in general should not be restricted to certain types of charges, certain types uh, of offenses, certain types of people. It really is appropriate for everyone to actually access things that they need, services, resources in their communities, and not have to go to prison where they're going to, they are going to get worse. We know that for a fact. And we know that we're not going to be safer um, if people do go to prison. Um, and then the other thing I would say is just picking up on what Tina was saying about success. You know, what, what does success mean on some level? I think we're seeing a lot of success with people who are able to, to reunite with their families or are able to obtain a job or, or stop using a substance but may not have a perfect record of attendance or may even get rearrested along the way. And... You know, I think if we have a more kind of holistic understanding of success and understand that the progress that someone's making is really what we, what we all want and everyone wants for the person, then I think we'll be in, in a much better place.
1: That was David Hayfitz, the Project Director for Manhattan Justice Opportunities, and Tina Luongo, the Attorney in Charge of the Legal Aid Society's Criminal Defense Practice. Returning to our participant, Elle, Suffice to say that he's in a much better place now than the 20-year-old who he says was thinking for others, not himself. Uh, like, I just, like, I, I honestly,
0: like, I have, like, a small, like, group of friends now, and, like, you know, like, they're pretty, like, positive people, like, not, like, really into, like, you know, negative things. So, like, I know, like, just, I know, like, the people I would be around now wouldn't put me in, like, a bad situation, and, like, I wouldn't put myself in a bad situation because, like, I, I've seen, like, what... That, like, what that's like, and like, I don't ever want to put myself nor my family in that situation again.
1: When he entered the ATI program, the promise was if he completed his programming, he'd leave it with only a misdemeanor on his record. In fact, he performed so well, he was left with only a violation, not much worse and, than a traffic um, ticket.
0: I guess, um, thank you, like, to like, if they'll hear it, like, just thank you to everyone that gave me the opportunity, you know, to like be a part of the program, and um, everyone that I work with. And, like, that was there to, you know, see me accomplish completing the program and, like, starting to, like, regain my life back. So, thank you to everyone.
1: L is grateful to a lot of people. His therapist, the program staff, his lawyer, and he's reluctant to see the person most responsible for where he is today is himself. He's got a full-time job, and, as he says, there's a bigger picture for him now. He's looking forward to the freedom of filling it in.
0: Just like keep trying to figure out what I got going on, cause like I don't have it like fully like figured out now. But I just know like I don't want to be in that situation again. So I just try to do everything I can to keep myself like out of like you know out of trouble, and like just want more for myself. Like I'm like, I'm getting older. I want my own house, or my own car, and I'll eventually start a family. Some like later down the line, you know, like just just live a normal life.
1: that was a profile of the felony alternative to incarceration work going on right now at the Center for Court Innovation. And I want to thank all of the voices you heard. First and foremost, our participant L for agreeing to share his story. Um, then Administrative Judge Ellen Byben, Legal Aid's Tina Luongo, and Manhattan Justice Opportunities' David Hayfitz. For more information about anything you heard in this episode, click the link in your show notes or go to courtinnovation.org newthinking. For help with this episode, my thanks to Shireen Crawford, Elise Brown, David Hayfitz, and Julie Rendelman. Today's show was edited and produced by me. Emma Dayton is our VP of Outreach. Samia Amin-Mia is our Director of Design. Our music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. And our show's founder is Rob Wolf. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening.